pushed his way to the front, and he slapped his ticket down on the counter, and he said, I have to be on this flight, and it has to be first class. He insisted. I'm sorry, sir, the agent replied. I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of these folks first. And the passenger was unimpressed. Do you have any idea who I am? He demanded in a voice loud enough for the passengers behind him and around to hear. And without hesitating, the agent smiled and picked up her microphone. May I have your attention, please? She broadcast throughout the terminal. We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. <laughs> if anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. And as the man retreated, the people in the terminal burst into applause. I would have loved to be there for this. And I'm glad we can laugh at that story because that is ridiculous. And that lady was on her game that day. I wish I was that quick with it. But I share that because I believe that we live in a culture that really struggles with identity. We live in a society that is full of people who really have no idea who they are. And so, really, I think the question that I want to wrestle with today that a lot of people wrestle with is, who am I? Who am I? In fact, I would argue that most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another, maybe more than once throughout our lives, have wrestled with this question. And so, when, the problem is that when we wrestle with that question and we don't, don't uh, come to a good, solid understanding of who we are, we will settle for what I would, would call identity replacements. Identity replacements. And so what kind of things am, am I talking about? What kind of things do people look to for their identity? Well, I think one, one of the first things a lot of people look to for their identity is difficult life circumstances. So a lot of us believe I am my problem or I am my struggles. And we define ourselves and find our significance in our divorce, our addiction, our depression, or our single parenthood. But that isn't the only place that people look. It's not just difficult life circumstances. And a guy by the name of Paul Tripp, he identifies four kinds of false identities, and he's the one who turned, uh, came up with the term identity replacements. He, he says that there are four of them, and, and I agree. He says that some, some people in our culture find their identity in acceptance. And so what they believe is that I am my relationships. And so they look to their kids, their spouse, their friends for their worth, and they find their meaning in the appreciation validation and love that they get from other people. So that's the first one, acceptance. The second one, a lot of other people find their identity in achievement. And the, the, the lie that they would believe is that I am my success. So they look for their worth, their meaning, their purpose in getting one more notch in their belt, getting that promotion at work, graduating with highest honors, they look at the work of their hands to be what gives them 
purpose in life. And still others find identity in their performance. And at first that sounds similar to your, you know, to achievement. Performance and achievement, they are, they are similar, but what I want to, to make is a distinction, and, and, and the distinction is that those who, who find their identity in their performance find it in their righteousness. They believe, I am my righteousness. And so these are folks who look to their good deeds and their morality to determine their worth and their value. So inside of the church, that looks like being here every time the door is open, putting your money faithfully in the offering plate, serving in ministry, and having a daily quiet time. And it's like, as long as I do those things, then I'm good. I'm, I have value. I have worth. And the last one is that some folks find their identity in physical things. They believe that I am my possessions. And so that's, that can be all kinds of things, but some common ones that people define themselves by are the houses that they live in, the neighborhood that they live in, the car that they drive, the clothes they wear. Some people look for that in the food and the restaurants and the places they go to enjoy life. Some people find it in sex. Other people find it in fun and leisure, and they travel the globe thinking that that will make them important. If they, they can just consume enough. And on the flip side of this, in the same area of possessions, I think some of us are even prone to find our identity in possessions, but in the sense that what we don't have. We start to, to, to wear, wear um, like, like, it's like a badge of courage, the car that we drive, or the, the neighborhood of town that we live in, because, oh, well, I'm content with just this. You know, and so we begin to define ourselves in, in that same area, but, it, but it's by what we don't have. And I share all of this, and I spend the time walking through that, because there's a huge problem with all of these identity replacements. And, and the, the, the root of it is, is that they're built on lies. They're built on things, statements and beliefs that are not true. You and I are not our problems. We are not our relationships. We're not our success, we're not our own righteousness, and we're not our possessions. Thinking we are, defining ourselves by any one of those things or a combination of them, will always leave us confused, discouraged, and empty every single time. And, and the reason why is that these things are all temporary, and they cannot, and they will not, last. They will not be there for us in the end. They will fail us, they will betray us, and we will be left wanting. You and I, what we really need is we need an unchanging, reliable identity. We need to know who we really are. Two, two weeks ago, the last time I preached, I preached out of 1 Corinthians 15, and we we were reminded of the gospel, the main thing of Christianity, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And today, what I want to do with our time is I want to talk about how that gospel applies to us as individuals, how it makes a difference in our lives. And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to be wrestling with that question I mentioned earlier, who am I? And as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we will learn about who we are in Christ, what I would define as our gospel-centered identity. 
So if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip to Ephesians 2. If you need one, there's one on the back of the pew in front of you. And as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we will see that this gospel identity entails who we were in the past, what God has done for us, and who we are now. Who we were in the past, what God has done for us, and who we are now. But before we read that, I want to pray together, or, or pray over, over our time together, and then I'm going to do, I think I did this a couple weeks ago, I want to ask you to stand after we pray, and we're going to stand as we read the word, just out of respect for the fact that this is a living text, that this is God's word. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be together with, with friends, to be together as the church this morning, to, to worship you in song, to be, be together exalting Christ, and we pray that as, as we spend this time in your word today, that you would feed our souls, that you would be with us, that your presence would inhabit this place, and that you would speak truth to our hearts, that you would replace the lies of the enemy, replace the, the wicked lies and thoughts that we fill our minds with, that, that are bombarding us with your truth. We need our minds, we need our hearts to be washed and cleansed by you today. And so would you do that with your word? Would you come and would you be with us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we read this. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can be seated. So I said earlier that, that our gospel-centered identity has really three components, who we were, what God did for us, and who we are. And I want to look at these first few verses and, and, and talk about who we were in the past. And if you look at that, you'll notice Paul, be, Paul begins this passage. He says, and you were. You were. You, in the past, were no longer. You were. And then he lists really, I would, I would summarize it in, in three things. First of all, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of our, the things that we've done, because of our wicked nature, we died. We were separated from God, spiritually dead, unable to know him, unable to do anything of real value, anything of spiritual worth. And then in verses 2 and 3, he goes on to the second thing and says that we were following the world, Satan, and our flesh. We were following the world, Satan, and our flesh. We were living a life that was patterned after this world that is opposed to God, 
that is under the influence of God's enemy, Satan, and we were controlled by our own sinful, wicked desires. We were in bondage to these things. And then as a result of all of this, this is the third thing that he says. He says we were children of wrath. By nature, we were children of wrath. And because, of, because God is infinitely holy, because he's perfect, righteous, he couldn't let our wickedness, he couldn't let our sin and rebellion go unchecked, unpunished, so we fell under his wrath. And if you notice, I, I went through that rather quickly, and, the, and there's a reason why. We could, we could spend a lot of time digging into that and, and talking about that. But what I've come to see and come to know about us as people and even us as believers, we spend a lot of time thinking about how bad we are. We spend a lot of time feeling guilty and shameful over the things that we do and the condition of our hearts. And, and we, we, we are constantly reminding of our, ourselves of how far we fall short and how we don't measure up. And I think that that is a problem because as this text teaches and as really the rest of the scriptures proclaim, we are not our sins. We are not our problems. We are not our past. That is not what defines us. And so I want to keep reading. I want to look at the rest of the verses here so that we will do what naturally we don't typically do, and that's think about, meditate on who God says we are and who we are because of Christ. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. It says, but God begins with but God. If you write in your Bible, circle those words. This is one of the greatest statements, one of the greatest truths, and you see that when God got involved, everything changed. We went from being dead in our sins, following the pattern of this world, Satan, and our own wicked desires, and being nature by nature children of wrath, to something radically different, and it's because God stepped in. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God did really three things here. I think Paul, Paul communicates really three ideas. First of all, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. And it says here that what led God to do this was his own character, his mercy, and his love. He was motivated. He was energized. He was completely found, found all of, of the reason for this in his own character. So he didn't see us and see something in us that made him want to save us. It was rooted and founded upon his own nature. We were, nat by nature, children of wrath. We had rebelled against him. And it wasn't, you know, he wasn't like, oh, look at these cute little rebels. They're, they're so lovely. I would want to go save them. No, he was motivated by his own character, by his own mercy and love. So it wasn't something in us, but something in God that put it into motion. And so he made us alive together with Christ and then secondly, he raised us up with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And so when we talked two weeks ago about the gospel, that Christ was buried, or died, buried, and was raised, we were raised with him. He didn't just raise Christ, he raised us. 
So those of us who are in Christ share in his victory over sin and death, and we are no longer bound to, with, to the world, to Satan, to our flesh. And, and the way that we know that, the way that we know that, that we really are in a place where we have overcome sin and we are in a place where we are secure is by the third thing. It says that God seated us with Christ in heaven. You notice all those things. He made us alive, he raised us with him, and seated us with him. These are past tense. So in God's eyes right now, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we are seated in heaven, in Christ, right now. That's who God says we are. It's the way that he sees us. He doesn't see us in light of the fact that we returned like a dog to its vomit to that sin for the thousandth time. He sees us as perfect and righteous and holy as he sees his son. And that makes all the difference. I want to move to the, to the last section. So that's what God has done for us. He has made us alive with Christ, raised us with him, and seated us with him in heaven. And that's changed who we are. And that's, that's what I want to look at in these last few verses. In verses 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in these verses, we learn who we are now who we are after Christ's life, death, and resurrection. First of all, we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Our salvation is not earned. It is a completely, utterly free gift. In fact, we aren't just undeserving of this. We are actually ill-deserving of it. We aren't just neutral and, you know, haven't done anything to deserve it. We've actually transgressed and sinned against the righteous, holy God of the universe. And because of that, we are not just undeserving, but ill-deserving. But God, in his mercy, in his love, saves us by grace. He is a God of grace, and he delights in saving those who hate him, who have rebelled against him. We're saved by grace, but we're also saved through faith. It is our faith in what Christ has done. It is our faith in his perfect life, his death on the cross in our place that saves us. It's not anything that we do. It's trusting in him. Believing that God really does accept us based on what Christ did for us. And that alone. That is what saves us. And then Paul says in verse 10 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this idea of workmanship, you could say it in other ways. We are God's handiwork. We are his creation. We are his masterpiece. God is proud of who he has created us in his son. He's proud of that. And he didn't just save us from our sins and from death, separation from him. He also saved us for a purpose. And I think this is really important for us to understand. A lot of us 
kind of stop in the middle there. We, we realize that God has rescued us from our past, rescued us from our sins, but then we don't think about the fact that he's also saved us unto something. He has a purpose in this. I mean, part of the purpose is, is, is rescuing us, but it's also setting us on a path that is really an eternal path that begins right now. And, and, and it's, it's a chance, it's an opportunity for us to be a blessing to him. And he has saved us for good works. So in eternity past, before he created the world, God knew that he would save you and he, that he would save me. Those of us that are in Christ, he knew that. And he chose to do that so that you and I would be the people who live lives, who proclaim with our mouths, but also with our very existence that he is God and that we have been saved and that Jesus is Lord of all. He did that because he wanted to receive glory from all of that. So he has chosen and sent to send us out as his messengers to bring his great news that through the gospel he is reconciling all things to himself. And so the purpose of, of his saving us is not just rescuing us from ourselves, rescuing us from our sin and our death, but it is setting us in a completely new direction with a completely new outlook on life, a completely new purpose, and that's living for him. And, and choosing to take every day that we have, every moment of every day, and not live for ourselves, but live for him, and to make much of him, to point to him. You see, you and I are not defined by our problems. We're not defined by our relationships. We're not defi defined by our success, our righteousness, or our possessions. And we are saved by grace through faith. And because of the gospel, God has defined us as his workmanship, his beautiful creation. And because of this, we are now redeemed, we're reconciled to him, we are loved by God, nothing can change that. If you want to know who you are, if you're in Christ, you are a child of God. You're a son of God, a daughter of God. That is who you are. The problem is we don't let that be enough for us most of the time. But if you think about it, those of us in the room who are parents, and even if you're not, you know what it is for a dad to be proud of his children, to love his children. That's how God sees us. He doesn't see us as these mess-ups who he just is ready to stomp on. If we're in Christ, he sees us as his delight, his children that he longs to be with, that he longs to know, that he longs to love. That's who we are. And that's who we are today, right now, because of what Christ has done. It's not something that's waiting for us. It's not something that we will get to. It's who we are right now. That's our gospel-centered identity. And our challenge is to let that reality sink into our minds and fill our hearts and just flood our entire beings so that we're no longer motivated, identified, uh, you know, caught up in the things that we've done or the struggles that we still have, but we're able to see ourselves as God sees us. I mean, he really does see us as his children. 
He really does see us as righteous, as holy, because we are in Christ. The question this morning is, will you choose to define yourself by who God says you are? Not really even to define yourself, but just to believe that you are who God says you are. He has defined who you are. Will you build your life on this identity rather than these other replacements? If we're going to do that, I believe there are at least two things that we must do. First of all, we've got to just start with just resting in our identity in Christ. Rest in your identity in Christ. Recognize that you don't have to be anybody. You don't have to do anything to be important. You don't have to go out and accomplish or amass this great life for yourself to have value or worth. And in Christ, every one of these identity replacements finds its fulfillment. Think about it this way. You want to identify yourself by your problems? God took them and laid them on his son Jesus. They are nailed to the cross, buried in the tomb, and because of his resurrection, they don't define you. You want a relationship that will sustain you and give you a reliable, reliable identity? You are alive in Christ, and because of him, you are loved by God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. In Jesus, we have an eternal friend who will never fail us. He will never leave us, forsake us. You want success? Jesus conquered sin and death. Every spiritual power, being, and achieved lordship over all creation. And like it says, if we're in Christ, we're seated with him in heaven. And what that means is we share that victory. We share that accomplishment with him. You want success? He's given it to you. You want righteousness? You want morality? Christ is perfectly righteous. He never disobeyed or profaned the name of the Father. And his perfect righteousness through the gospel is given to us. It's given to you. It's given to me. And finally, if you want possessions, Christ has been handed all things. All things. It's all his. And if we're in him, it says that we are co-heirs with him. It means that he shares everything with us. And we are, an, are now beneficiaries of all that God has. Every identity replacement, every single one, finds its true fulfillment, its true reality in Christ. And our identity in Christ through the gospel is the only true, reliable, unfailing identity that exists. Rest in your identity in Christ. Secondly, God is calling each one of us to live and love like a child of God, to live in love like a child of God. We are his children, and as his children, we have access to him always. He loves us, he cares deeply about us, and our concerns, our worries, and our hurts really do matter to him. The important thing, the thing that really makes a difference is if we will believe that and trust him with those things. Because in him and him alone will we find the comfort the joy and the hope that we really need, the, the, the stuff that we really long for. And then, 
as we receive that from him, as we are loved by God, what he does is he enables each one of us to do what he has created us to do, and that is to love him and love other people. He enables us to love like he loves. And we, we are full of his love. We don't need love from others. When we're full of his love, we don't need love from other people. Sure, he gives it to us, but we don't need it. What happens is when we're full of his love, he actually enables us to give his love to others. We're able to love like he loves. So what does that look like? If you're married, you have an opportunity to love your spouse like God loves you. Not for what they offer you, not for what they bring to the table, but because of the fact that you are in relationship with them and because God loves you, you're able to love them that way, unconditionally. And if you have kids, God will enable you to love them like he loves you as well. You don't have to hold out your love for when they perform or obey. You're able to love them even on their worst day. You're able to to pour out the grace and mercy that God gives you. And whether you're married or have kids, that may not be the case, but every single one of us in this room, we all have family, and we all have friends. And what we have an opportunity to do because of the gospel, because of God's great love, is to not view the people in our lives as people who are there to meet some need in us, but to have God meet our needs so that we're able to love people unconditionally, even when they don't treat us like we want them to treat us. And I think every one of us truly wants to live like that. We really want to be people who love people, who are able to appreciate those that we do life with, in spite of the times that they fail us, in, t- in spite of the, the situations where they disappoint us. And what I'm arguing is that when we really, really grab a hold of who we are in Christ and we really do experience the love of God, He will enable us to love people in spite of whatever is going on in those relationships. And finally, He'll even let us or not, not let us, but he will enable us to even love our enemies, to love those who not only, you know, sometimes fail us, but constantly hate us and, and are opposed to us. He will enable us to do that as we receive his love. And he's given us the spirit to empower us, to live like that, to do what feels and oftentimes seems impossible. So my prayer this morning is that if you don't know Jesus, that you would trust him today, that you would rest in the fact that he loves you, that God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He has saved you through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son. And for those of us who have believed in that, my prayer is that this reality, this ancient but eternal truth would begin to just flood over us and we would begin to see ourselves in light of who God sees, sees us as, not the things that we run to, all these different things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the chance to, to listen to your word, to, to be still for a moment and hear you, you speak over us, speak to us. If there's anybody in this room who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't currently have a relationship with him, who hasn't trusted in him. 
pray that they would do that today. And for those of us who have, I pray that we would recognize that the gospel is not just something that changed our past, but it changes our very person, our identity, and our future. Would you enable us by your grace to understand ourselves in light of who you say we are, your children, loved by you, redeemed, saved by grace, forever accepted, reconciled, forever with you. We need your help to to remember that. We need your help to let that be the thing that grounds us. Would you do that for us today, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.